Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 as we come back to a final look at this magnificent passage from verses 17 through 30. It's taken us six weeks to work through all of this, and it has helped us to understand why this is one of the most beloved passages in all of Scripture because of its richness, because of its depth, because of its relevance to right where we live. Paul has been uh, sort of setting the concept of suffering that we go through in daily life within the grand scope of God's plan and purpose for our glory. He's shown us a place of creation along with our suffering and the patience that we learn from it, the prayers of the Holy Spirit that come alongside of us in our suffering. And then the last two weeks, we've been looking at the providence of God over our suffering, which sort of rises to the pinnacle of where Paul is taking us through all of these things. God sovereignly controlling the things that we are going through. And Paul takes us into the riches of God's plan for us, not only at this particular moment, not only at the particular moment of your pain, but how God is working all things together for an ultimate good and purpose that extends beyond where you are right now, both in eternity past and in eternity future. In fact, he shows us how the very moment of your pain and suffering right now is actually linked in an unbreakable chain to an entire purpose of God that spans those two poles of eternity, an unbreakable chain of God's purpose, an unbreakable chain of God's salvation. As he told us at the end of verse 28, how God's working all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, he then takes in verse 29 and 30 and expands that purpose out across those two poles of time and eternity, as I said. And by doing that, he's really building our confidence and explaining to us that not one single link in the chain will ever be broken. So that even when you might think that God has abandoned you in the darkness and in the night and in the pain and in the suffering, you can have confidence that the one who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. That's because, as Paul says in verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And you can see the entire chain tied together, if you will, by those repeated references to those. Uh, From the very beginning, those whom he foreknew are exactly the same ones whom he will glorify, or as he says here, whom he has already glorified. No one is lost in the process from beginning to end. And you also, and you also see it by the repetition of the word also. Those foreknown are also those predestined. Those predestined are also those who are eventually glorified emphasizing that the very same ones who enter this process are the very ones who indelibly reach the end. We see that 
also just by the fact that these are all presented in passives, so we're not doing any of this, and none of it is contingent on our faithfulness. None of it is contingent on our activity, on our works, on our deeds, on our performance, or any of that. We are passive through the entire process. It is God who brings us into it. It is God who brings us to the end. And so Paul presents this magnificent chain of salvation, and you can't have one element without having all of the others. That is the whole point. Our confidence in God's providential purpose through all of our suffering is based on this unbreakable chain. And all of it is very particularistic. This isn't something that he's saying God does for everyone. God doesn't work everyone's pain and everyone's suffering together for good. In fact, some people go through pain very much to their demise and to the hardening of their heart, even against God, to the destruction of their relationships in their family and in their life. For some people, it is a further manifestation of of just how distant they are from God and how hardened they are against Him. But for those who are called according to His purpose, God's working it together for good. And it's that select group, it is that particular group, that limited group, who are the ones God has foreknown, the ones God has predestined, the ones that God has called and justified and and glorified. Particular golden chain of salvation for those who are within the purposes of God. God, in other words, isn't at work in every person exactly the same way. He isn't at work in everyone in the same loving and glorious way as He is with those described in this passage. Now, Paul defines the particular ways in which He does work in us who are so loved by God. And and first of all, we saw that last week in verse 29, with those whom He foreknew. And as we saw last week, this doesn't refer to some data that he knows about them, some foresight into some aspect of their thinking or their choosing or their activity or whatever it might be. This isn't about God gathering data ahead of time about anyone. It is about him initiating a relationship so that for God to foreknow someone is really for God to forelove them. That's why we hear Jesus telling us that on the last day there will be those who stand before him and say, didn't we do many great works in your name? And what will he say to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. Not as if he wasn't aware of their existence, but what he's saying is, I never knew in the sense that I never entered into a relationship. I never foreknew you, is what he's saying. I never foreknew you, I never foreloved you, I never entered into this unique relationship with you by foreknowledge. And so for those who will be saved, for those who will be eventually glorified, it isn't because God knew any particular fact about you, it isn't because He knew any particular action you'd take, it's because He entered into a relationship of intimacy with you, He set His love on you, and therefore... Because he foreknew you, in verse 29, he also predestined you. Which was the second aspect we saw last week, the second link in this chain. He predestined, which essentially means he predetermined. He makes a determination ahead of time. 
that you would be saved. That's why, by the way, because this is God's determination, because this is God's choice, because this is His destining, that's why over and over again you see in Scripture emphasizing that our salvation is not ultimately a matter of our own will, of our own choice, but of God's. As Jesus told His disciples in John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It's because of God's predetermining plan that He can say that. Or that's why John says in John 1.13 that you and I who are born again were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Or even Paul, over in chapter 9 of Romans, he says in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or on human exertion, but on God who has mercy. He's talking there about our salvation. And that's why you read in Ephesians that predestination in verse 5 of Ephesians 1 is according to the purpose of His will. Or Ephesians 1.9, according to His purpose. Or Ephesians 1.11, we're predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things after the counsel of His will. You can't escape it if you just read the Scripture that this is all a matter of God's will, of God's choice, of God's determination. The emphasis over and over again that he made the determination in eternity past. According to the Bible, we have been predetermined or predestined as an act of his will. Before the foundation of the world, even before eternity, he predestined us in love. Had nothing to do ultimately with your love for him. It preceded our love for him. In fact, it is in spite of our rebellion against him. As he's already told us, we were born enemies of God. And yet God, by his sovereign will and by his sovereign decree, chose those who were to be members of his body, members of his brotherhood, if you will, of salvation. Totally apart from human consideration, purely on the basis of his own choice. But God didn't simply select a few people who would be ushered into eternal bliss, who would escape, if you will, just the punishment of their sins. Paul indicates that this predetermination has a much deeper purpose than that. In fact, there are two specific purposes, and this is where we left off last week where Paul gets into the details of what this predestination is all aimed at. And he tells us, right there in verse 29, that God predestined us, Paul says, to be conformed to the image of His Son. So if your idea of Christianity and your idea of religion or whatever it might be is that you just attend a church or do you just say a prayer and that is sort of your ticket to heaven and your pass to some streets of gold and mansions of glory, then you aren't necessarily going to be thrilled with Paul's description of this predestination, this predetermination of what God's doing through salvation. If you have no interest in in being released from your old life of sin, if you have no interest in putting to death your old life, if you have no interest in holiness, if you have no interest in an increasing life of purity, 
then this predestination is going to be bad news to you. It's not the salvation you want. It's not the heaven you want. Because for Paul, the whole purpose of God working in people to predetermine them for salvation was so that he could bring about a dramatic change in their lives to conform us into the image of Christ, into who Christ is. That is his purpose in the plan. That's the purpose of his predestination. It begins here and now, as John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, when he appears, that is when Christ appears, we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he's pure. In other words, this is not something that is just an ultimate end. It's not as if you go through this life and you sort of live for the world and live how you want and pursue the sins and the misdeeds that you want and then God in the end makes it all right. He's saying, Paul, uh, John is saying that if you, are, if you are one who hopes, if you are one who expects to enter into that life hereafter, a life of conformity to Christ then, you will be experiencing conformity now. You'll be purifying yourself even as He's pure. This is His purpose. It is to form and to shape you so that you value the way of Christ's purity. You value the mercy, the way Christ values mercy. You value Holiness, the way that Christ values holiness. You value gentleness and patience, the way that He values gentleness and patience. You value integrity and truth and prayer, all the same way that Christ values those things, because you're being conformed into the image of who He is. Now, it'll happen instantaneously when He returns. We will be instantaneously and completely at that moment, conformed to His image. But in the meantime, we who set our hope on that day are being transformed. We're being made like Him. That's important to understand because many people, whenever they hear this idea of predestination, when they hear this idea of us being saved as a pattern of God's will and conformity to His purpose, one of their fears is if you embrace that doctrine, it's going to lead you to a very lackadaisical attitude. It's going to lead you to a sort of apathy in your Christianity. If God is the one doing all the work, if God is the one doing the ultimate choosing, then what does it really matter how I live? He's predestined me or he's not predestined me. One way or the other, I'm going to make it. So I might as well live however I want. But that understanding of predestination is not biblical predestination. That's not the biblical understanding of God's choice and the biblical understanding of his purpose. Because the biblical understanding is that he predestined you for conformity to the Savior. In other words, if he's called you the way that he describes here, if He has chosen you the way He's described in the Scripture, then He's chosen you to bring about a very specific result in your life. To bring about the freedom of your bondage to slavery. To bring about the transformation of your life into conformity with Him. That's what salvation is all about, but it's also, secondly, 
about the preeminent glory of Christ. As Paul goes on to say in verse 29, not only that he is conforming us to the image of Christ, but it is in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. So this predestination is, is not only about being like him, but it's also about us magnifying or him being magnified among us. God's design in choosing us to salvation is ultimately then not about us. It's not about you and me. It's ultimately about Christ and about his preeminence. This is what the word really firstborn means. It is in the, in the uh, Mosaic law, it was really a, a term, a legal term about, you might say, chronology. Just the one, first one chronologically born into a family. Those who were the firstborn or at least the firstborn sons were always entitled to a greater inheritance. They received, according to the Mosaic law, a double portion of what everyone else receives. So instead, if you got four sons, instead of dividing it four ways, you would divide it five ways and give two portions to the firstborn. But because of that, uh, that legal uh, stipulation, there also accrued with it this idea of special honor and special status and, 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 and the firstborn being, if you will, the primary heir above all the others. And so it became not just a chronological designation, but a designation of honor and preeminence. And that's the way Paul's using the word here. God's desire is that we all inherit glory along with Christ, but ultimately that he be exalted throughout that glory as the most honored, as the primary heir of all things. God, in other words, is doing all of this. He determined all of this. He chose all of this. In order to build a community, a brotherhood of those who will both cherish the character of Christ in their own life and magnify the person of Christ as their highest goal. Now again, this is essential for us to understand if we're going to understand biblical predestination, biblical uh, election, to understand that this is really all about the exaltation of Christ. It's not about the exaltation of you. It's not about making you preeminent. It's not about lifting you up above others, which allays the fears of some other people who think that predestination, this sort of exclusive selection by God, inevitably leads to pride. They say that because... Too many times their experience with people who believe in predestination is an experience of those who would argue for it maybe in arrogant tones and in in prideful tones. But in fact, the, the doctrine itself should lead to the exact opposite kind of, of uh, experience. Uh, the doctrine itself should lead you to be humbled tremendously. To know that there was absolutely nothing, there was no condition, there was no circumstance, there was no choice or movement or virtue in your life that set God on you in any kind of way apart from anyone else. To know that you were as blind, as rebellious, as much at enmity with God as anyone that you'll ever meet. And to know that God chose you anyway. Such an understanding should lead you not to any kind of arrogance before anyone, even those 
who are unbelievers, those within the Christian community who may not even agree with you because you understand just how blind you were, because you understand just how hopeless you were, because you understand just how powerful was the working of God to bring you to where you are. This kind of doctrine promotes humility. And ultimately, its purpose is to promote the exaltation of Christ. Ultimately, its purpose, its end goal, Paul says, was so that you might look at life and eternity with the primary goal of exalting your Savior above everything else. So that's predestination. That's the second link. And to that end, Paul says that God not only predestined us to such purposes, to such goals, but he goes on to say in verse 30 that those whom he predestined, he also called. The third element, the third link, if you will, in this chain of God's purpose of salvation, this calling. But as we've seen, the way Paul links all of this together, we know that everyone who is called... Everyone who receives this call are the very ones who are also glorified. They're the ones who are eventually called, the ones who are eventually saved, the ones who are eventually resurrected, the ones who are eventually together with God in heaven. And because of that, we understand this that Paul's talking about to be what is known as the effectual call. Every person called is eventually glorified. And so this call is always effective in its work. It is effectual. We call it that because we know by common experience that not everyone who hears an outward call of the gospel automatically responds. Not every outward call of the gospel, not every proclamation and presentation of the gospel has that kind of effect. Not every sermon, not every testimony, not every witness. People hear all the time a certain kind of call and they reject it. And so not every call results in justification. Not every call results in ultimate glorification. Not every call is effectual in that sense, but this one is. This one is because those who are called are also justified and those who are justified are also glorified. It's an unbreakable link. So this call is different. It's different from the general call that everyone receives. It's different because it always brings about its desired effect. It's always effectual. John Murray says uh, here of this passage, he says, we become partakers of redemption by the act of God that instates instates us in the realm of salvation. And all the corresponding changes in us and our attitudes and reactions are the result of the saving forces at work within the realm into which by God's sovereign and efficacious act we have been ushered. The call as that by which the predestining purpose begins to take effect, is in this respect of divine monergism, after the pattern of predestination itself, it is of God and of God alone, end quote. In other words, Murray is saying that this call is inextricably linked to the predestining purpose of God. It is 
that reason that we distinguish it from the general call. The general call, which is that call to everyone who hears the preaching of the gospel to believe. And the effectual call, which is the call that enables us to respond to the general call of the gospel. It enables us to believe. And so this is a reference to that unique call. It's different. It is special. It is set apart. And it comes only to those who have been predestined. You hear that emphasized, by the way, in other places of Scripture when you hear this call described. It is distinguished from the general call, first of all, as to its time. It is eternal. That's what 2 Timothy 1.9 says. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So this is an eternal call in the sense that it originated in the ages before time. It was a call of God that that coincided, we might say, with His predetermination. It's distinguished, secondly, secondly, in terms of its character. Paul calls it there in 2 Timothy 1.9, a holy calling. Holy in the sense that it's set apart from all other calls, from the general call of men, the general call of the preaching of the gospel. It is holy in the sense of its effects. It brings about holiness in our life. Thirdly, it's distinguished as to its power. It is an irrevocable call. As Paul will tell us over in Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So once God gives this call, it always accomplishes its purpose and he never rescinds it. He never turns back. It always is efficacious, effectual in the sense that when God issues, it always brings about its result. Fourthly, It is distinguished from the general call in its place of origin. It is what the writer of Hebrews calls a heavenly call. He he says we are holy brothers, you and I, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, a calling that originates from heaven. It It is not like the call that's uttered here in the world by men among men, This is a calling that comes only from God and only from heaven. Or another way to say this is that this is a distinct internal call rather than the external call. In that sense, it is something that takes place within us. It's not as if we hear God's voice when we say it's from heaven. It's not as if we hear God's voice calling out to us from the clouds, some, some audible noise. But you sense God's work in your heart. God moving in your heart to give you an understanding of truth. To give you an understanding of belief. That's the call of God. You come to a place like this and you're not a believer and, and you've heard hundreds, thousands of sermons before, but, but today is different. Today there's something stirring in your heart, some movement of God in your life. That is, 
not the result of an external call. It's not the result of yet one more sermon in your life. It's the result of an internal call, an internal movement of God on your heart to bring about salvation. And because of this internal work, this call is always, always effective. It always has its desired effect. In other words, this isn't God, it's not a call where God gives us a choice. This is a call where He gives us a heart. He gives us a desire. He puts His Spirit within us. He writes His law on our heart. He gives us a new heart and a new life. And so it's no surprise if we describe this call as irresistible. It is an irresistible call. We cannot resist it. In fact, we We don't want to. Anyone who would think that this is a a call that can be resisted misunderstands the call. We couldn't resist this any more than we could resist our own creation. We couldn't resist this any more than a dead man could could resist being called back to life. Because we're really passive in this whole thing. It's not as if God is forcing us against our will or imposing something on us or manipulating us. Because in issuing this call, what God is doing is He's he's planting within us spiritual qualities and spiritual desires and spiritual will that yearns for Him. It would be an absolute misunderstanding then of what the call is all about to suggest that you could resist it because it misunderstands the whole nature of the call the call in other words is the movement of God over your deadened heart over your previously hardened heart over your previously unspiritual heart Awakening you to spiritual realities that you've never known. And with those spiritual realities come desires you've never known. Desires now to know the Word of God. Desires now to know God. Desires now to be in fellowship with Him, with other Christians, to do His will, to use your life to glorify Him. An awakening of desires that never existed before. So the last thing you would ever want to do is resist this call. Because it's a call now to the things that you suddenly love. That you never loved before. Now under normal circumstances, this effectual call will coincide with the presentation and the proclamation of the gospel. In other words, under normal circumstances, the inward call will coincide with the outward call. I say under normal circumstances because we know from Scripture there are some who never hear an outward call. There are, for example, infants who die before they are capable of responding to such a call. And the Scripture gives us hope and trust that God brings them into glory. But under most circumstances, the effectual call, the inward call, has its effect through the general call, the outward call. That's why it remains so vital that you and I open our mouths, that we open our lips and call people to believe. 
As Paul will say just a couple of chapters from now in chapter 10, how then will people call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? In other words, sure, God has maybe elected all kinds of people to salvation. God might have predetermined them. God might have called them. But that call is not normally going to take its effect without first hearing, without someone proclaiming. And so you and I have a tremendous joy, a tremendous privilege. Not that we're responsible for some inner work within someone. Not that we're responsible for some inner call in their heart. But we have the tremendous privilege of being used by God with the proclamation of an external call so that he would use that in his selective work of the internal call. The joy that when he chooses to use our witness to bring about the regenerating work of his effectual call, we get to participate in that joy. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me over at the book of Acts for just a moment. In chapter 13, you have the most uh, instructive passage here on really this role that we have in evangelism. Paul had come into a city, he and Barnabas, and preached the word of God. But he had a, an unfortunate response. You'll see in verse 44, the, Sabbath, the next Sabbath of Acts 13, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God, the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by God excuse me, spoken by Paul, reviling him. So you can imagine how difficult this must have been. The Apostle Paul standing up, he probably had an initial excitement. There were a whole bunch of people who had gathered together, maybe had some expectation of a massive uh, influx of souls, but immediately whenever he begins to preach, what happens? People ridicule him. People revile him. People contradict him. It's a difficult thing to do. Public speaking and to be called out like that. But Paul goes on to say, they spoke out boldly. He says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And he says in verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. You see, that's, that's, that's evangelism in one verse. You proclaim the word of God. You give the outward call. You give the general call. You give the universal call. And then you have the comfort and the joy and the privilege when God gives his internal call to see the response of some. We shouldn't have the impression that somehow this universal call is going to be as effectual as God's internal call. But we have the joy of knowing that God has chosen in His divine and gracious providence to issue that internal call through our preaching, through our proclamation, through our witness. There will be many who hear your voice, no doubt, and reject it just like the Jews did for Paul. There's no imposing on them to do something against their will. They freely hear, they freely choose to reject the truth. And 
Because of that, they will be justifiably condemned because of the choice they made. But for some, that outward call comes and an inward call of God's gracious love coincides with it. It'll have nothing to do with you. It'll have nothing to do with them. It'll have everything to do with God's working of grace in them. That leads us to the fourth element back over in Romans chapter 8 of God's chain of purpose, which is those whom He calls, He also justifies. Those whom He calls, He also justifies. And we don't need to spend a lot of time here since really this was the main topic of of Romans 3 through 5 and consequently the main topic of our discussion for weeks. But if you remember, this is essentially an accounting word. This is essentially a a reference to accrediting. Accrediting of you with a righteousness that is not your own. That is Paul's way of describing it back in Romans chapter 4. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was accounted to him. It was put, if you will, on his account or in his ledger, deposited, we might say, to his credit. (laughs) By this act of God, you go then from being declared on one hand to be an enemy of God, to be a sinner of God, to be at enmity with Him, to be cut off from Him. You go on one hand from being declared that way to now being declared righteous, completely righteous. You go from a relationship of being under God's wrath to a relationship of unbroken, absolute, and eternal peace with God. That's what God gives you when you believe. And so Paul's telling us that those who are foreknown and those who are predestined are also called and those who are called are then justified and you go from being under God's wrath to being under His peace. We might have been foreknown by God or even predestined by God. We might have even been called by God. But until we are justified, we're still under His wrath. Until that moment when God makes that declaration of us, we are clearly outside of Christ and enemies of Him. Justification then is the moment when God credits to us the righteousness that we did not achieve. The righteousness no one could achieve except for Christ. By being in Christ God now looks at you as he sees Christ and he credits you with the righteousness he sees in Christ. And so whenever you are saved, you don't receive just the wiping away, the forgiveness of your sins, the removal of your evil deeds. What you receive is the credit of righteousness that you could never achieve on your own. And it's at that moment that we actually at that moment, become connected to Christ. At that moment that we come into vital union with Christ. At that moment that we experience the joy of true fellowship with Christ. It's true fellowship. It's true communion. It's true uh, knowledge of Him. But even still, it isn't what we might say full fellowship or even full knowledge because that awaits final 
glorification, which is Paul's fifth and final element in this chain, the final link in this chain of God's purpose for salvation, which he says there at the end of verse 30, those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this is really the pinnacle. As Paul told us all the way back in verse 17, if we suffer together with Christ, we will also be glorified together with him. Even in verse 21, he mentions this glorification again. And in verse 19, he talks about it in the sense of us being revealed as God's children. Or in verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. Those are all terms that are speaking of the same thing. And so this whole passage is woven through with this theme of glorification where Paul is is moving in such a forceful way to this ultimate end. But it's interesting because whenever he finally gets there in verse 30, he speaks of it in the past tense. Because in God's mind, it is as if you were already there. He speaks about it like it's something that's already taken place. It'd be like you talking to your five-year-old and him saying, well, you know, Dad, when I was in college, and you're thinking... Um, son, you got the cart before the horse. Well, this is the way he speaks about our glorification. It is yet future, but he speaks about it as if it's already happened. Because in God's minds, it is as settled as his decision in eternity past to foreknow you. This glorification is settled in God's mind, but it still awaits us in the future. See, we speak about salvation as something that has happened to us. I, I was saved by grace through faith. We have been saved. We also speak about it in the present tense. We are being saved in the sense that God is preserving us. He is keeping us, as Jude says, causing us to stand on the day of Christ Jesus. But there's a very real sense in which salvation has not yet fully come. So Paul will eventually say in Romans 13, 11, that the day of our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. In other words, there's still something that is still waiting us in the future. This salvation that Paul says back in verse 23 awaits the final redemption of our bodies. This is the ultimate end For everyone whom God has foreknown, everyone God has predestined, it is ultimately that we would be glorified. Which doesn't necessarily happen, by the way, when you die. When we die, we pass into what theologians often call the intermediate state. The state where our soul is made perfect. We are forever separated from the, the, uh, the weaknesses of our flesh. And so, therefore, we are separated from the tendencies of sin. And we pass immediately into the presence of the Lord of glory. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, is being absent from the body and being present with the Lord. He says there in 2 Corinthians 5, we know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. And yes, we're of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Those are the only two options. 
You either are here in this body and you're separated from the presence of the Lord in that sense, or you're separated from your body and you're in the presence of the Lord. And this is the state for every believer, we might say the promise made to every believer, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, it's far better to depart this life and to go be with the Lord. There was no sense in Paul's mind of any other option at this point. There was no idea of what For example, Roman Catholicism calls limbus infantum, that place that we sometimes refer to as limbo, a place where souls of unbaptized infants go, where they are separated from suffering and yet without any vision of God. There was no sense of a purgatory where people who are a part of the church but are imperfectly sanctified go and supposedly undergo fires of purification until they are one day released as the Pope disperses some merit out of what the church calls a treasury of merit, the good deeds and the good works that were built up not just by Jesus Christ but by the Virgin Mary and by other saints, that doctrine which really wasn't even developed until the 6th or 7th century under Pope Gregory, became a workhorse of fundraising within the church as they began uh, in the 14th century to actually sell those indulgences. One of the so-called good deeds, one of the most effective, is the actual paying for these merits. And so it has become, even down to this day, the largest fundraising tool of the Catholic Church, the selling of forgiveness from a supposed treasury of merit. All built off of an idea that never appears in Scripture. All built off of a notion that's constructed completely outside of anything taught by the apostles or by Jesus Himself. What you find in Scripture is simply this, that when you die... You go immediately into the presence of God if you are a believer. You go immediately into that presence which Paul says is far better than our current life, fallen and weak as it is in our bodies. But even still, it's not the pinnacle. That's not the pinnacle of God's work. The pinnacle awaits final glorification. The final resurrection of our bodies. We are, you see, we're not destined beyond this life to some sort of non-material, some sort of ghostly or spiritual existence floating among the clouds. The vision of Scripture from the Old Testament through the New Testament is a vision of a final day of transformation in our bodies. As Philippians 3 says, God will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious resurrected body by the power of Him who enables all things to be subjected to Himself. So we're waiting, not just even the departure from this weakened fallen body, but we're waiting this transformation so that our outer man 
is made new, like our inner man already has. And we are ushered into what Paul called earlier the freedom of the sons of God. We're, we're gloriously freed from the bondage related to this mortal body, and we're free forever in our resurrected bodies to serve the Lord in perfection, perfect obedience to all His commands, where we will finally know what it is perfectly to do the will of God, where we will finally know what it is to experience the joy of unbroken fellowship with Him, where we will finally know what it is not to battle sin, not to forfeit the joys of obedience to the Lord, to perfectly know and perfectly understand at all times what the will of the Lord is in all matters and to be perfectly able to do it. With unclouded judgment, we will always see exactly what He wants us to do and will always be able to do it. What a glorious thought, really. It is admittedly hard to imagine to be in a body, to have before us tasks, deeds, assignments, Ways of worship and service and to always be able to fulfill our heart's desire to honor Him. Back in Romans 8.21, Paul says that all this will happen in conjunction with a restored creation, an earth, a world that is renewed where our lives are worked out in a society in cities and in nations and in places where God's glory is finally preeminent. To the extent that you grieve over the direction of your city or your country or your world or your society, to that extent you will rejoice in the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the scripture will be fulfilled, the psalmist says in Psalm 16, in your presence there's fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That'll be ours in our resurrected bodies. Or in the words of the great hymn, I Am a Debtor by Robert Murray McShane, he says, when this passing world is done, when has sunk yon glaring sun, when we stand with Christ in glory looking over life's finished story, then, Lord, shall I fully know but not till then how much I owe. When I stand before the throne dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see you as you are and love you with unsinning heart, then, O Lord, shall I fully know, but not till then how much I owe. As Paul says in verse 18, our present sufferings are not to be compared with the glory of that is to be revealed in us. You see, right where you are right now, the struggle that you're having in your marriage to pay the bill, to find the job, to do whatever, the the pain, the suffering that you're having with your health, whatever the turmoil, the darkness, it is unbreakably linked to that day. It is unbreakably linked to that glory. 
And Paul says, what you're going through right now doesn't even compare. You shouldn't even put it in the same sentence except to take comfort in thought that if God's foreknown you, he's predestined you. And if he's predestined you and called you and justified you, he's glorified you and you'll be with him forever. Let's stand together, be dismissed with a word of prayer. With your heads bowed, I want to just speak to you who are here today. You hear all this about God choosing you. You hear all this about about a calling, an internal calling. You hear all this about eternal hope of glory. And it couldn't be more foreign to you because you have never been called. You're here today and you've heard lots and lots of outward calls, but you've never responded to the inward call. Today is the day of salvation. The Lord's brought you here today so that you can hear this message, so that you can be saved, so that you can believe. We don't have an altar call here, but we have an invitation. The invitation is that you would confess to God that you have been a rebel against His law, against His will in your life. Confess that and give your heart and life to Him. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and they'll be glorified. Father, we're grateful this morning, thankful to hear again from your word, thankful to hear this call. We pray, Father, for those who are here who all they have ever known were the external calls of the gospel. We pray that you would so move in their hearts, that you would so stir them with conviction, grief and sadness, over how they've rebelled against you, but only to fill them with the joy of hope in believing. Lord, may you be magnified. You have saved us for that purpose. May you be manifest in every way among us, in our lives, conformed to the image of our Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.